0: And I walked into that company fully intending to interview the CEO about his entrepreneurial journey. And when I walked in, he asked me, are you here for the interview? I said, yes, (laughs) but actually he meant they were trying to hire a scientist at the time. And so it was literally one of those serendipitous moments where I said, yes, but I also want to do the other one. And I did, and I got that job. So that was how I got my first biotech job was just by walking into the office.
1: You didn't know that you were walking into an interview and you weren't even scheduled for it. No. Wow, things happen and don't for a reason. Welcome back to NGB Ideas, a podcast about the personal journey of leaders, innovators, and disruptors in the Canadian life sciences community. Hi. I'm Jim Wilson, and our guest this week is Ella Koretz-Smith, who is co-founder and chief strategy officer of Virica Biotech in Ottawa, Ontario. Virica Biotech has developed unique viral sensitizers that turn off antiviral responses in cells. The work they're doing is exciting and another example of the groundbreaking research being done in Canadian life sciences. But today's podcast is not about that research. It's about the journey of our guest today. Ella and her family emigrated to Canada from Eastern Ukraine in 1990, and hard work, resilience, recognizing when to pivot, knowing what to do when a door opens, and how to overcome imposter syndrome are some of the topics Ella and I touch on today. Before we get to our show, we'd like to thank the TMX Group and the Hamilton Health Sciences Foundation for their support. We'd also like to thank our major sponsors that include Admari BioInnovations, Omnia Bio, Bay Area Health Trust, Eurofins CDMO Alphora, Nova Nordisk, X Design, and Lab Occupier. This episode was recorded in August 2023. Ella, thanks so much for joining us today. I've been looking forward to this conversation for quite some time. Thanks for having me. I'd like to start by talking briefly about where you were born, which is Donetsk in eastern Ukraine. And the war in this region, of course, has been going on for more than a year, and I hope the conflict ends sooner rather than later. This is not a political discussion. You and your family left Donbass and immigrated to Canada in 1990, and you were quite young, and I understand your entire family decided to emigrate. Is that correct? That's correct. We are some of the last groups to come to Canada. That would be a huge move for any one person, but to move en masse. So I was your parents, you've got a brother, and did your grandparents come as well?
0: We brought them over two years later. It really is quite an amazing thing that a lovely woman who I call my great aunt, but she's actually my grandfather's cousin. An amazing thing she did for our entire distant family by coming over in the 70s, settling in Canada, and then slowly over time bringing her sisters, her cousins, their children over by sponsoring them to be landed immigrants in Canada and so we were lucky enough to be among those people and then we brought my grandparents again by sponsoring them and the rest is history now we're all here and what a time to be here and not there
1: is everyone in the GTA still or have any of your family members gone elsewhere in Canada
0: Most people are in the GTA. There are some members of the other side of my family who are in the US, different branches, but emigrated from the same region into New York and and Brooklyn. And then I do actually have some family in Israel as well.
1: I understand your mother was a teacher. Could you tell us about her?
0: My grandmother was a teacher.
1: Oh, your grandmother, I'm sorry.
0: My grandmother was a big influence on my life. She was a, a teacher of Russian language. Actually, interestingly enough, retired when I was born, but has always loved teaching and has taught me and my brother and anybody around her really all she could. And she always spoke very highly of the profession. I think she's kind of hoping I'd become a teacher, but not something that I actually wanted to do, but absolutely a huge influence on my life.
1: Your parents were both professionals before they emigrated. Your father was a urologist, and your mother was an electrical engineer. Were they fluent in English before they got here?
0: Absolutely not. They were learning English as they were trying to work and make money, and it's not easy. It was something to to see them try and do that. I think I probably had better English than they did, and my brother certainly did, after about six months being as young as he was.
1: What did that lack of English mean for their careers?
0: It was a big challenge. And my father, at the end of the day, ended up not being able to go back to his original career. I think partially because it was difficult to pass exams on the subject that he may already have known, but in a different language, and also taking care of the family. My mom did eventually do something that was similar to what she was doing, but it took her many years to actually get back into her career track. The struggle was real, and we saw it every day as
1: kids. Listening to your story, it sounds like your parents literally sacrificed their careers so their kids could have better lives.
0: A hundred percent. That's exactly what it was. It was always very obvious to us that that's what they did. The good news of that was that it was incredibly inspiring. It was almost a certainty that we had to succeed. There's no failure allowed in a sense. But in other ways, it was also somewhat pressure building. And there's a healthy dose of that. I think we were on the right side of that pressure. But certainly uh, now that I'm a mother myself, I think about that and I think about how thin that line could have actually been.
1: Thank you for sharing that. I have to admit, when I was reading about this part of your story. I was thinking, we're not talking about the 1930s or 1950s, we're talking about the early 1990s. These obstacles are still going on today. I'm still trying to digest this because frankly, I'm feeling a bit of guilt for the privileges and rights I've got for just having been lucky enough to have been born in Canada. I share that luck with a lot of people and I think we too often take it for granted.
0: I do also feel very lucky in a sense, to have been brought to Canada at the time when I was brought here and to effectively grow up here and have pretty much the same upbringing and the same opportunity as most folks that were born here. I just had a bit of a rough start. And certainly over the years, as I've grown in my career and as I've had people support me in, in different ways and make connections for me and, and help me, it had always brought me back to this idea of I am so lucky to have been brought when I was brought and to have the opportunity to do just about anything that I wanted to do. And the reason I think I am so driven is probably to do with the fact that I was so close to not having that.
1: So let's talk about school. I read that you went to Forest Hill Collegiate near Spadina and Eglinton. So I'm guessing you grew up in the immediate area?
0: No, I actually grew up in Dufferin and Florence area. It was actually on the edge of a very low-income area. The high school that I was actually meant to attend was not very good. The difference is the graduation rate and the rate of people going to university. In Forest Hill, it was about 93% going on to university. In my home high school, it was, I believe at the time, something in the area of thirty. And so my parents said, okay we're gonna do something different. They figured out where the good schools were and they had me apply and I got in and I went to Forest Hill and was part of that cohort that all mostly went to university, which was expected.
1: So this strategic thinking and forward thinking person that I've met am now speaking with today got it honestly from your parents. Absolutely. Was high school the place where the seeds of interest for life sciences were planted?
0: Sort of. I think it was through the co op that I did out of high school, working with Michael Johnson's laboratory at Mount Sinai Hospital. But I can't even remember how I got into it. I honestly do not remember why I did that or how and how I got there. But I remember being fascinated by the work that we were doing. It was essentially making models of lung cancer in rats. And then testing drugs to treat that cancer. And I was doing all of these things as a 16 year old kid, and I thought it was magic. That was amazing.
1: That stuns me. You're 16, you're working in a lab in Mount Sinai, probably in a position that many university students would give their eye teeth to experience. And you were there. This thoracic surgeon, I believe, that you were working with, if I understand correctly, you were dissecting cancer tumors in the lab. What was that experience like?
0: It really felt like magic. The fact that my immediate supervisor, his lab associate, who allowed me to essentially, he said, well, here, do this. And then he just showed me how to do it. And then he had me do it. It really was empowering and amazing. I don't think I even really realized how amazing until later on. Because, boy, I thought we were doing stuff here that was so high level. I was watching my colleagues, if you will, other folks in the lab, they were pipetting. They they were working with little tiny tubes with what seemed like nothing in them, and they were transferring things here and there. And every day I would come in and I would just be absolutely amazed. I got hooked by just, I wanted to know what was in those tubes. What was it that I was putting into those mice, and how was it actually going to all work? It was a fascinating experience. I never looked back.
1: I have to say that you were 16, you're working on cancer tumors at Mount Sinai. I think I was mowing wands. (laughs) (laughs) One of us went down a better path. It sounds like high school was very interesting for you at a bunch of levels. Were you playing any sports? Were you belonging to any clubs? Were you working?
0: I was working. Actually, that's probably what I did most. I started waiting tables in late high school and put myself through university by working while studying. I had no choice in a sense. I just kind of had to do it. But also I really enjoyed it and I learned about people in a different way, which was, in hindsight, quite informative and amazing and certainly set me up very well for the rest of my life. But it didn't leave a lot of time for extracurricular activities. One thing I did do, I was part of some unknown reason also, Ontario Students Against Impaired Driving. It was a club that we had in school. It was kind of a chance to be in front of people and focusing on an important cause. That was something that I jumped into and I really enjoyed and had my first kind of leadership experiences through that as well.
1: Things have turned out pretty well for one of us. I tried waiting tables when I was around that age and I lasted for half a shift. And I have every respect for people in that industry because it's not an easy job. You do have to deal with stuff that you shouldn't have to deal with, but unfortunately, people will be people. And I had a short fuse, and I, I remember walking into my manager's office, and it was the place was packed. And I said, I'm sorry, but you've got a decision to make. You can let me resign now, and I'm very sorry that I'm doing this, or I'm going to go out and slug the guy at table six. <laughs> I, and you're serious? I said, yeah. And that was the extent of my career in the restaurant business. After high school, you attended the University of Toronto. What degree did you pursue?
0: I pursued medical genetics. It's called something different now. Molecular medical genetics, I think. I did my undergrad and my graduate degree at U of T in the same department, essentially. So I spent quite a lot of time at U of T doing that.
1: Did you attend U of T because of geographic desirability or because of the program?
0: I attended U of T because my parents said, you're going to go to a university in Toronto, basically, <laughs> yeah. In fairness, it was not a very big choice that I was given. It is well known to be a great university with great science programs. I think my father said something like, and you're going to make connections that are going to be valuable and important for the rest of your life. The people that I met at U of T, the researchers that I worked with at U of T in those early years, have absolutely been valuable to me both from a perspective of peer interaction and collegiality but also from a perspective of their pedigree or their status if you will it helped somebody who really had very little other status to fall back on get that stature in the community like when i used to say to people they asked me before I even went to grad school, they asked me, Well, what labs have you been in? And I would say, Well, I did my undergraduate thesis with Lab Chi Choi, who happens to be the discoverer of the CFTR gene, it was the first person to sequence a gene of any kind and is world renowned for that. People go, Oh, oh yeah, I know Lab Chi Choi. And so all of a sudden I had some cachet in the scientific community. That's huge value. That's something that I had to build from nothing. And all of a sudden, I had this opportunity to build that and have that weight behind me.
1: And street cred like that is not granted, it's earned. We're talking about your fourth year thesis at U of T with Lap Chi Choi. What was that experience like?
0: this particular program anyway, gave you a choice to do a thesis of of any kind. And again, I I can't quite remember why I picked this particular lab with this particular project. I remember I was working with a couple of graduate students. We were sequencing, we were trying to identify more mutations in the CFTR gene because at that point it's been sequenced fully. And and there are hundreds of different mutations that were identified and some were important and some were not, but we're still finding more. And so I was taught how to do the sequencing of the pieces of this gene using radioactive materials and then these giant gels. It was like being part of a spaceship, putting this together and then loading it in and then seeing this color run and then reading the genetic code that was all of a sudden you know, in front of me. It was almost like I knew a bit more about the magic. I felt like I actually knew what was in those tubes because I was doing something with it. It was really interesting to be able to actually feel like you're discovering something, the excitement of it you know, reading along, reading along, all of a sudden, oh, there's something different here. The excitement of that was huge. You know, and of course, he spent the last three weeks setting up for this, coming into the lab every day and da-da-da-da. And so you're living for that moment where you can all of a sudden see, oh, yeah, there's something here. It was really awesome, actually. I only saw a lab two, probably about three times in the 18 months I was there. I'm not sure if he you knows who I am. What does it
1: doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to take a moment to say that one of the privileges I have of hosting this podcast is speaking with really cool people like you and watching them light up when they talk about special moments in their path and you just lit right up. It's so fun to watch. You finished your undergraduate degree in 2002, and we mentioned earlier you jumped into your master's degree. At this point, were you thinking teaching? Were you thinking medicine? Were you thinking anything at all? Or was just like, yeah, I'm going to stick around and keep going to school?
0: It was a bit of that, actually. (laughs) What I did know is I did not want to be a doctor, to much chagrin of my father. I thought to myself, I don't think I want to spend my life with stick people. It's a horrible thing to say, but just knew that that's not what I wanted to do. I didn't exactly know what I did want to do, but I really enjoyed the science, and it was kind of a swift transition into graduate school. I really enjoyed it. I tried a few different labs, met a bunch of people, decided to join the lab of Dr. Andres Nagy at Mount Sinai at Lumenfeld Institute, working this time with embryonic stem cells, which frankly set me on the path that I'm currently on now, which is great. But at the time, I just thought I liked the energy of the place, and I liked the idea of making new technology, and I thought that was really neat. But I didn't actually know what I was going to do with that, so I just kept going. Eventually, after about two years, when there was a lot of pressure to convert into a PhD program, actually, at that time, I thought, I loved the science. I'm just not sure I want to keep you know another eight years in the lab. I'm not sure that's for me. So it kind of evolved.
1: Hi, it's Jim Wilson here. We'd like to take a moment to let new listeners of our podcast know that NGB Ideas is part of Next Great Big Ideas, Canada's Life Sciences Summit, which is an in-person event taking place at the Hamilton Convention Centre on the first Monday in October. The NGBI Summit is a national networking event for the Canadian life sciences community. If you want to meet leaders, innovators, and disruptors, this event is for you. For more details and to purchase tickets, please go to nextgreatbigideas.com. You had a couple of epiphanies and sought out your past as it presented itself. Was it around this time that you met a certain guy? Well, actually,
0: no, I met a certain guy earlier. We met in a third year, in undergrad.
1: Sorry, what is certain guy's name?
0: certain guy's name Derek Smith. My current husband of 20 years
1: next week. Congratulations. Thank <laughs> you.
0: So that was in third year, and we actually finished our undergrad together and were deciding what to do. And he also ended up doing a graduate degree. Maybe part of the decision, somewhat, was I might want to stick around and see what <laughs> <laughs> we both did do a, a degree and kind of stuck around school was a fabulous time actually. It was a very formative time with respect to becoming a more mature person of running your own experiments and building your own hypotheses and seeing what you can learn on your own terms and where you can make connections. I really actually enjoyed it very much. It really was a great experience and Having my now husband do something parallel as well was great. We had lots of work together, and we were able to build a pretty solid relationship based on a lot of the work as well as personal stuff,
1: and it was great. So you finished your Master of Sciences degree in medical genetics in 2004, and you were having this second epiphany of, like, maybe I don't want to spend the rest of my life buried in a lab. And at one point, I read that you were thinking about intellectual property law, and your then-husband, I guess, who was just graduating as well, got accepted into medical school in Halifax. Correct. Which prompted another decision. So you packed up your bags and you went for a drive.
0: Exactly, yeah. That's what we did. It was getting one of those things where it was so close to not happening that when we heard that it was happening, it was just a no-brainer. And then off we went. And again, the good news for me was that I didn't have any ties in a sense. I was still very much exploring, but because of the degree that I had and because of the skill set that I had built at Mount Sinai in embryonic stem cells, I was very marketable in just about any academic university or hospital. So I was able to find a job in stirring seconds in the lab just about anywhere while he was going to
1: medical school. And,
0: and I got a job and I was able to essentially continue my thinking while I was working.
1: And there is a very vibrant life sciences community on the East Coast and in Halifax in particular. And I'm looking forward to having some guests on future episodes. If there are any listeners who want to suggest people that we should approach, please get in touch with us. While you were in Halifax, you took an entrepreneurship course at Dalhousie. And why did you make that decision? Yeah. <laughs>
0: I laugh because my first thought, to your point, was I was thinking, maybe I'll do some IP law because I'm a scientist by training. Maybe that's something that keep me in science, but not have me in the lab. In service of that, I actually took the LSAT, which is the exam, to get into law school. And I was awful. It was really bad. (laughs) It was very discouraging. My first year medical school husband did better than I did in this practice test. It was awful. So I thought, okay, well, that's no good. And so then I just tried it out. I just looked around and I saw this entrepreneurship course, and I thought, why not? And I loved it. It really was amazing, because all of a sudden, I was talking to people about things that mattered to others. It was like how the world works. You know the science is cool because you know I was the one that was reading the genetic code and out of the 325 lines of 326 Im was something else, and, but I could only talk to about like six people that understood what I meant. But all of a sudden, entrepreneurship was like how companies are built, how money changes hands, how people make and buy products. It was like every day. And it was very refreshing at the time. I thought it was so amazing.
1: So you made the decision to pursue an MBA.
0: I did, yeah. In those serendipitous moments when you just kind of say, you know what? I like this. I'm just going to do that. But before I did, I actually did a project with that first course, having to interview a company and find out about what they did. And so I chose a biotech company because I would say that's where my interest lies. And I walked into that company, fully intending to interview the CEO about his entrepreneurial journey. And when I walked in, he asked me, are you here for the interview? I said, yes. (laughs) But... Actually, he meant <laughs> they were trying to hire a scientist at the time. And so it was literally one of those serendipitous moments where I said, yes, but I also want to do the other one. And I did. And I got that talk. <laughs> so that was how I got my first biotech job was just by walking into the office.
1: You didn't know that you were walking into an interview and you weren't even scheduled for it. No. Wow. Things happen and don't for a reason. So that company was Immunovaccine? They were called Immunovaccine.
0: They changed the name to IMV a number of years ago. They were a NASDAQ-listed company. That was 2005.
1: I'm sorry, I'm chuckling because I was going to ask, gee, what brought you to uh, down the path to Immunovaccine? And there was nothing planned. Nothing, nothing planned. Figuratively and literally. When you were at Immunovaccine, that was the first time that you really transitioned from the lab into business development. Could you walk us through that process?
0: I think what we're talking about here everything was kind of leading to things that I wasn't expecting. And and this was another one of those. I actually met a gentleman in in Intervex C who just happened to become the new CEO about six months or so after I joined. And then this gentleman's name is Randall Chase. And he's been a mentor to me since then. The reason I say that this person is so very important to my career is that when he came to me I was in the lab. I was already starting my MBA we had a number of conversations and he looked at me and said you should be in business development and i said what is that <laughs> <laughs> And he said, well, if you're going to tell people about what we do and you're going to tell people about the products and you're going to see if there's things that we want to do together, if there are some collaborations that we can create. And and I thought, okay, yeah, that sounds great. And he mentored me through that transition into essentially becoming director of business development at Immunovaccine and being the face of the company in the many partnerships that we've created over the five years that I was there. And What's really interesting is I interviewed Randall for a business case, essentially, that I co-wrote as part of my MBA. It was the interview with Randall and the story of the immunovaccine, the strategic positioning and the strategic thinking and and transition of the immunovaccine. And Randall's comment about strategy in business was, strategy is sitting by the door and being ready to run when it opens. That was a comment that he made to me as part of that interview. And I thought, yeah, exactly.
1: Strategy is sitting at the door and waiting for it to open.
0: And being ready to run.
1: So that infers an escape running away rather than running towards. I'm probably reading too much into it. I
0: would say the opposite way. To me, what that means is there's lots of closed doors around, right? And you never know which one of those is going to open. But if you are ready, as soon as something opens, you go.
1: 100% agree. And a lot of people watch the door open. They peer they overthink it, and then it closes before they're ready to make a decision. That's right. Thank you for the analogy. I understand it. Took me a bit. (laughs) We're going to come back to your personal life for a moment, if I may. It was around this time that you had two daughters, and your husband was getting his medical degree at Dalhousie, and you're working full-time?
0: Yeah, I had one daughter in Halifax, and then we actually moved to Ottawa for his residency, and then that's where we had our second daughter. He was a resident, which means 24 hours a day of work, and I was working at a new vaccine. After the second one, I thought I was traveling so much that I didn't want to do it anymore, so I switched jobs to a company in Ottawa that promised me no travel for a year, and I thought, great. And, of course, right after a year, they send me right back on the road.
1: So they kept their promise. And that company was Nordion, where you were global brand manager for sterilization technologies, correct? Correct, yes. That sounds pretty cool, but I haven't the faintest idea what it means. <laughs> what did that job entail?
0: So sterilization technology this is my only med tech job by the way and after that i decided that why i go back to squishy things like cells sterilization technologies really meant cobalt 60 which is a radioactive metal that was used to sterilize medical devices in large factories so about 70 percent of our medical devices single use like bandages and needles and syringes things that are sterilized using this cobalt 60 Nordion made a huge proportion of that radioactive metal globally. So we're world leaders in that. So my job was to, essentially responsible for marketing initiatives, but also thinking about what's the next product that we're going to put forward and for our customers and how we should talk to them and communicating with within the larger group, getting them together and getting them focused on a strategic vision for that business. It was interesting. It was essentially working with engineers and working with metal and large factories not the fastest moving business, very steady, lots of cash. So coming from biotech, it was like unbelievable. I couldn't imagine how people made all this money and didn't do any, hardly any R&D. And I thought, okay, well, not for me. <laughs>
1: so it's a job. It's not a career.
0: Yeah. After a few years, I thought I'm ready to go shake and move and do something.
1: So it was time to move on. Yeah. At the same time, your husband. Finished his residency, and the two of you decided to move back to Toronto, I'm assuming because family was here and, and job opportunities. Was it before or after you came to Toronto when when you approached some of your mentors? And I, I was reading about this, and I thought, oh, that's interesting. And people kept saying, you yeah, know, maybe you should look at going to the U.S. Is that correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. Then this is in the early 2000s? We came back to Toronto in 2014. Okay, so relatively recently, people were saying, yeah, you really should go to the U.S. because there's not a lot of opportunities, basically, in the life sciences sector. Exactly, yeah. Nine years ago in Toronto. Correct. And one of your mentors said, Yeah, eh, no, you should
0: stay. Absolutely. Randall Chase, the gentleman that we were talking about, him. he wasn't influential because I basically yeah. said, I want to do business development and biotech, and a lot of people said, oh yeah, for sure, you know, in Boston, go work for Novartis for a few years, and then you'll come back here and then you'll have that big company experience. I just couldn't see it. But Randall said, you know what? You have the skill set. You can build it here. You can definitely do all those things that you might quote unquote learn how to do in the big company. But in the big company, you might have a very narrow pigeonhole job and you will never actually even see some of the deals that are being done. In fact, you may have more experience working on some of the smaller projects but seeing it all
1: it strikes me as somewhat ironic that listening to you it sounds like the Canadian life sciences sector is following the path of the Canadian entertainment sector where to make it you got to go to the states
0: absolutely it is unfortunate that there's still that perception and to some degree reality yeah you know reality is perception perception is reality whatever you want to call it right
1: So you decided to stay in Toronto and become a consultant in the life sciences sector, and you hung a shingle and did some business development for companies on a fractional basis, correct?
0: That's right. Early on, I decided I didn't want to call myself a consultant because I felt that when you consult, that means you give advice. But what I was doing was business development hands-for-hire, which meant I was not just giving advice, I was also implementing. I still to this day believe that's the right model and the right thing to do because a lot of companies that I was supporting were small shops they maybe had two or three or ten people they're not big organizations and the people who were running them not only didn't have the know-hows and knowledge they didn't have the time to implement whatever it was I was going to suggest that they do and what was most valuable I think was me saying, you know what we should do? I think we should implement this program and I'm gonna go do it. I am going to go and make the phone calls. I'm going to go take the meeting. I'm gonna use my network, but I'm actually gonna do it. And that I think is what is really needed. I'm not the only one doing this by any stretch. I don't wanna suggest that I'm unique in this. However, I do think that we need more of that kind of approach to advising, whatever we call it, or hand-holding. We actually need the senior people to do it because the founders don't have the time. You can give them the best advice and they won't be able to do it because they have another hundred things that they have to do that's on their plate.
1: I'm going to get in trouble by saying this. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. I'm hoping that there are some people in in levels of government listening to this and saying, you know what, we should stop talking about people funding the life sciences sector and we should start writing checks. And that's all I'm going to say. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) One of your first contracts was a four-month gig as director of market development for Synergy Health in Tampa, Florida. I hope it was January to April, but how did you end up getting that contract? It's not like it was in your backyard. You, did you know someone? Were you recommended?
0: They were a partner that I worked with when I was at Nordion. And so when they figured that I left, they basically took me and said, hey, you should come develop this new area of business for us. And I thought, oh man, that's awesome. And it was great. It was totally awesome. All of a sudden I had my first contract for somebody who just hung up their shingles. I was like, oh, it was so great. And then of course they went and got bought. And so that contract ended right there. And so all of a sudden I was with no clients. The next six months was a bit of a trial of talking to everybody and meeting everybody and reintroducing myself to all those wonderful people I knew way back when in Toronto. It was a little bit like starting over. Whatever doesn't kill you, right? It built strength.
1: Exactly. Hi, it's Jim. If you're a new listener, we'd like you to know the NGB Ideas podcast and the Next Great Big Ideas Summit have been created to raise awareness and financial support for McMaster Children's Hospital in Hamilton, Ontario. MCH provides critical pediatric care for families in need from Niagara Falls through Brantford, Hamilton, Waterloo region, and north to Owen Sound on Georgian Bay. You don't have to live in this region to support McMaster Children's Hospital and any financial support you can provide will be greatly appreciated. For more information, go to hamiltonhealthsciences.ca slash McMaster children's hospital. Let's get back to today's show. In January 2016, you took on the role of Vice President, Business Development, at Advanced Proteome Therapeutics in Vancouver. I'm guessing you were doing work from anywhere before working from anywhere was a thing.
0: Oh, absolutely. The founder of that company was based in the U.S. somewhere. It's been a long time I can't remember where, but he was not even in Canada. Business development, let me tell you, is a work from anywhere business because most of your clients aren't actually where you are anyway. Unless you live in Boston. If you live in Boston, a lot of your clients are in Boston. But you can do business development from anywhere because we have travel and we have conferences and we have ways of interacting. And that's what I've been doing since so, so the beginning of my career. It's been travel and it's been going to where my customers are and being in a remote and working that
1: way. Shaking hands, kissing babies, uh, smiling for the camera. I'm going to backtrack a bit here because in May 2015, you became executive director of TO Health, which is where our paths crossed. I would appreciate you explaining to our listeners the story behind TO Health. Why was it created and what did you do there? All these things happened
0: so serendipitously that I don't even really know how that happened. But I think it was that networking, that time when I was six months wandering around, just talking to anybody and asking how I can help them. In fact, if I was to point to anything is the most important phrase. In fact, there's two in networking. Who else should I talk to and how can I help you? And those two things have led me down a lot of really interesting paths and and got me to a lot of places that I am now. So in doing that and asking how I can help you to all kinds of people, I actually had somebody say, you know what you can do? (laughs) You can review this deck that I have from this initiative that the Board of Trades put together and has asked me to run. And I don't know what I'm talking about.
1: And this was the Toronto Board of Trade?
0: This was the Toronto Board of Trade, yeah. So it was a gentleman I met from, I can't even remember how, and we were chatting. He wasn't a scientist, he wasn't in bikes. Like he said, I have like these 18 CEOs that get together every six months and they think about how we can improve Toronto as a place to invest in life sciences. And they put together this presentation. Can you just like look at it and just see what you think? And I was like, okay. So I came in and I looked at it and I thought, man, you have a powerhouse back there. You have all these people course, sign me on to say, yes, I want to be part of an initiative that makes Toronto more prominent in life science. I want to promote Toronto as a place that needs more investment because we have all these strengths and capabilities and we're going to list them all and we're going to really get on the map. As I got involved in this, I said, well, you know, you can do this little bit here and this little bit there. He effectively said to me, it was probably about like a month into this casual, how can I help you relationship? He said, oh, by the way, I'm leaving. I'm moving on to Vancouver. Do you want to run this thing? <laughs> and I, oh, there's a door. OK. Quick, run. Yeah, run. <laughs> I, exactly. I was like, all right. Oh, sure. In the next three-ish years, almost four, I would say, we built this thing into an economic development initiative that had some very strong Connectivity, the, the mission was really to try to explain to those that don't know why Toronto is wonderful, and it's Toronto region, I mean, I'm not saying it's City of Toronto, to try to connect people that are trying to do all kinds of good work so that we're not duplicating resources, that we're using our resources to the best of our ability, that we're getting more funding in, that people are hearing why the area should be funded or why companies there should be funded. It was a fun, fun time. It was a challenge in ways that I didn't anticipate, which included things like good organizations, trying to fight with other good organizations.
1: (laughs) Silos, barriers, lack of cooperation.
0: All of that. We can probably spend the next 15 minutes talking about all that, working with government and working with not-for-profits and working with for-profits and All of that stuff was fabulous. It got me in front of a lot of people. I think it actually got some people talking that would never have talked before, which is the most important thing in any ecosystems, getting people to actually interact and get to know each other. It really was about trying to create that network effect, get people to start saying, oh, I'm doing this. Oh, I'm doing that too. Oh, cool. Why don't we do this together? For example, the kinds of things that we did were we created a conference that is still going. It's now operated by Mars called Impact Health. And the idea of Impact Health was to get everybody to put on events around health in the same three days. I will not try to tell you the headache that that is.
1: I have a sense. <laughs> That's
0: right, sir. you do something like that. I'm not sure why, glutton for Punishment, uh, you are taking that on. Actually, I do know why. I understand because you know I did it for a number of years and it's super rewarding. I'm hoping that what Teal Health did was open some people's minds about life sciences, open some people's doors to one another and create those relationships that may have been already there but maybe not have been and get some momentum, get the flywheel, push it a little bit further.
1: On behalf of the Ontario life sciences community, and I'm not saying this to make you feel good. You laid the groundwork for bringing the community together and realizing that they did have to break down those barriers and those silos, and it was you in particular. There were other people, but with the benefit of a few years of hindsight now, I keep hearing your name as one of the people that started this down the really cool path it is now on. So thank you.
0: Thank you very much. That's very nice to hear.
1: Well deserved. So after three years as executive director in June 2018, you became director and CEO of Toronto Health and you stayed in that position until March 2020 when the organization kind of wound itself down. I'm sure the whole Toronto, Ontario life sciences community was disappointed when that happened. Why did it happen?
0: So actually, I transitioned the role of CEO to another gentleman. So I decided that I wanted to go back to being in biotech, to working in the ecosystem and not on the ecosystem. I actually decided that I wanted to go back and operate companies. And so in that decision, we hired a new CEO. And I stepped on the board and we had created this structure already. And so we were able to do that. You know, at the time, the new CEO looked at the ecosystem and things were changing. I mean, we had a change in government. I think we had a number of organizations that were sort of shifting around and were starting to create new programs. The new CEO and the board decided that CEO Health has done a job and there was a kind of a moment for it. And that now we can pass the baton to the next thing that was going to happen. And so we bound the initiative down. But as I said, things like Impact Health remained, right? And so I think we fundamentally achieved our mission of starting something and pushing the flywheel a little further. Again, here's a door. Completely unbeknownst to me at the time, as I was transitioning from the CEO role, my colleagues that I'd worked with seven years before then on a different project, were conspiring to create a company around a technology that I had seen back then and thought it was really cool. And so they called me up and they said, okay, we're ready to start this company. And it was just in that moment when I was making the transition they I said, okay, door open. And, and then off we went with Veer for Biotech.
1: That was in June, 2019. I think that's a great story on so many levels because a few years prior to that, you were working at the biomedical center at the Ottawa University Research Institute, and you met up with these folks and y'all got together and you saw something, but at the time, nothing happened. What did you see?
0: This is very early on in my chaos Business Development shingle hanging that the Biomanufacturing Center at OHRI asked me to look at their technologies and look at their infrastructure and think about what they could do in the biomanufacturing space. And this was 2014-ish. And so I got to meet you know, Diallo, who's the scientist that had a lot of involvement in that center, and saw the technology that we're now calling viral sensitizers, or VSCs. And thought, this is so applicable. Oftentimes, you see researchers just say, I can do this thing. It's really great. And then you say, Well, awesome. Why? Mm-hmm. What does that actually do? Where the viral sensitizers were so obviously targeted of a problem. And the problem is, viruses like vaccines or gene therapies are very hard to manufacture because that's be made in cells and cells hate viruses. So if you're trying to put those two things together, it's, it's not going to fly. What Zosmone Diallo created or identified are molecules that essentially make the cells more welcoming to viruses, and so these viruses grow better. Why do you want to grow viruses, you ask? Well, because oncolytic viruses are actually cancer therapies. Flu viruses are actually vaccines. They're actually used as a vaccine. Adeno-associated viruses are gene therapies, so they are actually used to transfer genetic material into other cells. So you have to somehow make them and you have to make them efficiently. And these molecules were able to do that. They're able to increase the yield of viruses and reduce costs and make it more efficient. So the problem was so obvious and he had a solution. And I thought, that's a company. And at the time, he just wasn't ready. He was ready to run. I think he had the idea.
1: The door hadn't opened yet.
0: Exactly, yeah. He had other things. And so in actually 2018... He called me out and he said, okay, now I'm ready. And I said, okay. And then off he went. We got the license in 2019.
1: So that was you, Jean-Simon and Diallo and Ken Newport. And you are the co-founders of Virica Biotech. And you are based in Ottawa. And you are now about 35 people and you raised a series A in 2021. You're just about through a series B. Things are going really well from my perspective. What challenges does your sector face to get to the next level?
0: The more that we learn about cell and gene therapy manufacturing, which is mostly where we play, vaccine manufacturing, we all know how that goes. We just had no vaccines a few years ago. Unfortunately, our molecules couldn't help with those particular vaccines that would be manufactured, but boy, did that raise the profile of manufacturing. All of a sudden, you have to get this stuff out. Cell and gene therapy, it lives that every day. The whole industry lives the manufacturing problem because of the complexity of the manufacturing. It's not like just throwing something in pot and stirring it. You really have to use the biological systems like cells. It costs a ton of money to even produce enough to be able to see if this thing is gonna work. In order for the industry to actually be efficient, in order for the industry to work at the end of the day, you have to get better at manufacturing. You have to get more productivity, you have to get more consistency, you have to standardize as much as possible so that you actually are able to reuse knowledge and make the processes as simple as possible and as reproducible as possible. So that when all of a sudden you get to a huge need, right? You get to the really big markets or the really big applications like Parkinson's or Alzheimer's or some cancers that you are able to produce enough with these therapies to actually be accessible and viable. Right now, a lot of the applications are very small. They're rare diseases, they're single patient, and that's fine, but what we wanna get to is more people having access to these cell and gene therapies. And the only way we're gonna get there is through more efficient manufacturing. So that is what we work on every day in the and others. I don't wanna say we're the only ones, clearly not. Our approach is very complementary to a lot of the other approaches that are being developed like different media, different bioreactors, different cells, all in the service of making cell and gene therapies more viable as a therapeutic modality because they have so much promise and being able to cure diseases that have never been cured before or be protective for so many diseases in the context
1: of vaccines. Thank you for walking me through that explanation. I'd really appreciate it. Hi, it's Jim again. We hope you're enjoying today's show. We'd like to take a moment, if you don't mind, to make a couple of small asks. If you like what we're doing on NGB Ideas, we would really appreciate you telling your friends about us. Please share a post on your social media platforms with the hashtags NGB Ideas and NGBI. We're on Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn at NGB Ideas. We'd also appreciate you joining us at the Next Great Big Ideas Summit in Hamilton this October. You can get details on our speakers and and the whole program at nextgreatbigideas.com. Thanks. Let's get you back to today's show. So that's where we are today. Where is Erika going to be in three to five years? Do you have a crystal ball? I wish.
0: I think we're going to be designed into a lot of these processes because what we can do is by a pretty simple addition of some of our small molecules, improve the yield so that you make more virus, two to four times more virus from the same amount of stuff. So I think where we're gonna be is in many different products in the clinic and maybe some on the market. I mean, that's the big dream, right? To actually be in a marketed product. That's possible, but it's only possible now that we have the data that we have with our molecules, that we have the manufacturing figured out for the molecules themselves, the regulatory packages, we have the setup to be able to get there. We're already working with 50 plus customers on different products. And so over the next three to four years, we're going to hopefully be in some that are getting pretty close to, to making it. I mean, obviously some are not going to make it just because that's what the business, but we're hoping to be in some that are they're going to make it. And this is what I really want. I want us to be in a product in
1: Canada. That would be fabulous. And I'd look forward to reading that headline. I'd like you to put your consultant's hat back on for a second because you have worked with startups. You have now been part of a startup. You know, you've put your money where your mouth is. For those startups in this sector who may be listening, are there any words of advice that you would give to them?
0: So the first thing I would say is find the people that you want to marry. You. <laughs> Professionally. In a very professional sense. But it's like a marriage, honestly. So if you're a founder and you have a great idea, you have a technology, good God, please don't do it alone. Find people who are going to share that vision with you. The reason that I believe Vierka Biotech is where we are is because the three-legged stool of myself, JS, and Ken have complementary skill sets that are allowing us to have the science, the business, and the finance in one company. And we also like each other. And we can argue and we can disagree. And at the end of it, we can come back and say, okay, so what are we actually going to do here, guys? That is invaluable. That is going to be your cornerstone as a startup. So find people that are going to have parallel skill sets.
1: That you want to marry. It's not a marriage of convenience. It's a marriage that you want to be in.
0: So that's one. And then the next breath is find money that you want to marry. <laughs> <laughs> find people who are going to fund you and your ideas for what they are and believe in you and stick with you, especially some of that early money, because that is going to make or break it yep Yeah. There's so many make or break things, but this is so one of them. Find the money that you want to marry. Maybe lastly, just to sort of wrap up, it has to be something that you believe in. Whatever that means for you, I think people sort of believe in different things. Some people know the science and they believe in their science and some people know the business and they believe in their business, but whatever it is, you have to believe it because you're going to be saying this over and over again. till you're blue in the face, you're going to be talking about this for the next hours along. And so just make sure that you believe the story that you're saying. It gets harder if you don't say it over and over. All that to say, it, one of my biggest learnings early on, and I actually I put it on my business card for my consulting company, and in the where it says, it's all about people.
1: Good advice.
0: You have to have the money, you have to have the technology, but if you don't have the people, you're done.
1: 100%. I read that you believe persistence, but the ability to pivot when necessary and knowing when to admit that something ain't working out are the keys to building a successful startup.
0: Yes, absolutely. It all comes down to the team has to believe what they're doing right up to the point where you have evidence that it's not true. And at that point, you have to have A, enough realization and enough depth to say, you know what, that's actually not true. We have to do something different. But then you also have to have enough foresight and and enough sort of stick to it enough to be able to say, okay, well, what do I do with this now? How do I tip it? And that's why I come back to this. Again, it's about the people. If you have a team... It's able to do that. It's able to say, we're going to keep going and we're going to make this work. Oh, this didn't work. We have to admit that. What do we do now? Well, let's go left. That is where success happens. It's in those iterations and those pivots and keeping at it and keeping going and sticking it out because I'm not sure why I keep referring to this. It's like marriage. It's a long road. It's not a marathon.
1: Pay attention to the good stuff and the bad stuff. Absolutely. I'm going to go down a path that I am absolutely unqualified because I am not qualified to talk about what I'm about to ask. I'm sure you've been in situations where you're the only woman in the boardroom. Yep. I'm wondering, selfishly for our listeners who may just be graduating or entering university and trying to figure out their life's path, are there any business lessons you've learned from those moments that you can share, especially with perhaps younger women who are listening, who may just be starting their career?
0: I love talking about this now, and I I talk to people one on one about this all the time because I think it's so important. Absolutely, I've been in places where I've been the only woman in the boardroom. It's getting a little better, but slowly. I've had an experience, and I'm not going to name the company, where I was the only woman in a very senior boardroom, and at one point, after about a day's meeting, I was taken aside and I was told by somebody. You know, you're really great, but you should top less.
1: Oh, really? Yes. Because you're a woman?
0: We didn't say because you're a woman, but I just can't imagine anybody giving that advice to any other guy. How did you react? I was so shocked. I said, I don't think I can do that. Good for you. Thank you. It really took me aback. So, that experience I mean, what it taught me is is the following you have to be at the table and you have to be able to say what you believe. You know, everybody has their own style. But if you believe in what you're saying, you have to be able to say it. And if people are not allowing you to say it, it may be the wrong table. Maybe go find a table that will allow you to sit there and be in the conversation. The challenge that a lot of young women have is it's hard. You have to put yourself out there. And as women, we unfortunately are just naturally more cautious, I think, and and I think fundamentally believe that we have to know 100% of the thing and be absolutely right before we put our hand up. It's been shown, there's been studies of this sort of thing where a man will say he's qualified in a situation where he is much less actually qualified. A woman would be similarly qualified but would never say, I am qualified. It's something that we just have to be aware of. And as women, we have to be able to put ourselves in situations when we have an opinion and we want to say something. We may not be 100% qualified, but nobody is. Let me be clear. Nobody is. You are as qualified as anybody else around that table. And you have to be able to say it.
1: Thank you for sharing that. I'm sorry you went through it, but I really do appreciate you sharing it with our listeners. We've been talking over the last little bit about networking and mentorship and whatnot, and I sometimes have people approach me and say, how do you network? How did you get a mentor? I'd like to ask you that. Is there a secret sauce to networking? You did mention a couple of things earlier, but is there a secret sauce to getting a mentor that is worth their weight in gold?
0: You no, know, there's no secret sauce, <laughs> but there are definitely things that you can do and you should do. I'll repeat a couple of things I said before afterwards. At the very core, networking is about being curious about other people. It's really more about that than about what you say about yourself. I mean, yes, you have to have your 30-second speech or whatever. Yes, that's not really going to be networking. That's a monologue. Networking is about coming up to somebody and saying, hi, I don't know you. Tell me about what you do. Tell me about you. And guess what? People want to talk about themselves. So if you are able to comfortably walk up to people and ask them about themselves and be honestly curious, if you're faking it, people can kind of tell, but be honestly curious. Hey, Jim, haven't seen you for a long time. How are you? What's new? What are you doing today? What's on your plate? I mean, is there anything I can help you with? Be curious and people respond and mentors kind of respond to it too because they kind of want to see not so much how you're going to help them but they want to see that they're going to be able to impact you somehow and those people who like who talk more than they listen won't be able to receive that mentorship i think with curiosity and the true interaction and listening and then responding back that is absolutely critical and people will come out and they will want to help you in fact randall chase my mentor told me at some point early in my career, that people want to help you. And I asked him why, and he said, you talk to them. That I think is, it's not so magic, no stupid sauce, but I think there's that. If you are out of questions, out of things to talk to people about, two things. Who else should I talk to, and how can I help you? Those are the two you should always, always ask.
1: Once it stops being about you, it'll start being about you. All the time. Thank you for that advice. I read that when you were CEO of TO Health, you experienced a bit of what I guess would be called imposter syndrome and kind of adds on to what we're just chatting about here. And I've experienced that in my career as well when I was just starting out. And even today, sometimes when I walk into labs and people assume that because I work in the life sciences sector that I know what lipid nanoparticles are all about and I don't have a science background and I am very clear in this podcast to point out that... I'm just asking the questions and trying to get stories of really cool people a little bit of light because they deserve it. That was a pretty long lead-in to this question. Better be a good question. I'm all ears.
0: (laughs) Please, Jim, tell me.
1: How can I help you? (laughs) Well done. (laughs) I would appreciate any advice you can provide to work through those times of uncertainty. How have you been able to overcome that imposter syndrome?
0: Slowly. Once every time, just keep on going. I think it's about finding people who believe in you with small things, right? Like you make a point and then somebody says, that was great. And then you go back to them and say, why wasn't that great? Tell me a little bit more about that. Finding those people who are going to see the you. They're going to see the thing that is not the imposter, but the thing that you are, that you want to see, and hopefully will echo that back to you. It doesn't happen quickly, but you have to put yourself out there. Because you will never get that response if you don't put it out there. If you don't put that first toe in the water, if you don't make that comment, if you don't step out and put something on the table or sit at that table, you will never get that validating response.
1: Be authentic, be honest, and if you don't know what someone's saying, say, I don't know.
0: That goes without saying, I feel like, and maybe that's not fair, but I do feel that women are better at doing that, but I think sometimes even too good. I think we sometimes sound less sure or ask more than maybe we should. And it comes from that imposter place. I think at times it's completely warranted because it creates a more open environment. It fosters collaboration, it fosters ideas, but I think at times it also detracts from your point. It's all in moderation. And I found with groups like TO Health, where I was the lead and I had 18 CEOs sitting around the table and everybody had their ideas. You know, my job was to moderate, but at some point I had to put up my hand and say, here's how I think this is going to go. If you built enough trust if you've had those small wins, if you've had people contribute and you had people feel like they're part of the conversation, that statement that goes much better. And then you better better supported. You don't feel like you're completely out of left field. So I think the being there, the listening, the allowing people to contribute fundamentally helps as long as it doesn't completely overshadow what you're trying to achieve, because that doesn't help anyone.
1: Well said. We've all got bucket lists. What is on the bucket list of Ella smith
0: I think eventually I'd like to put more of my money where my mouth is. I mean, at this point I'm able to contribute to companies with sweat equity. In fact, you know, for the last ten years has been sometimes what I had to do into projects that I believe in. I would like to eventually to be able to invest real dollars into projects and and companies that I believe in. That's gonna take some time. That's gonna take an exit or two. Not gonna name names, companies, but may or may not be able to do so. Hopefully may but I'd like to be able to take some bets like that because I I think what that allows me to do more so is be at that table, be at the helm and just frankly see what I can do. I sort of laugh at myself a bit because sometimes I feel like I do things just because I want to see if I could do it.
1: Nothing wrong with that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I would like to take a few of those bets and see if I can do it. I'm not sure if that's what you're asking, bucket list wise, career wise, that's where I'd like to go.
1: I think that's a great answer. Last question. What is the next great big idea on your horizon? Eureka Biotech is the current great big idea.
0: I think we're going to solve a very major issue in biomanufacturing. I would love to be able to solve it in Canada. The full intent of Eureka is is to stay in Canada and stay Canadian, as we are currently. I would hope that we make cell and gene therapy more affordable and more what we call democratize cell and gene therapy, meaning we make it more efficient for these products to be brought to more people by reducing costs and improving efficiency of production, and that, that's the goal. I would love to see Canada take that up and use it and uh, make our biomanufacturing more efficient and, frankly, do more of it. I want more customers in Canada. We're working on that from both sides, put it that way, right? We got to get more companies going and we got to get more companies using our products and we got to get more stuff being made in Canada.
1: And I think we need more people like you in the system doing the stuff that you're doing. Again, thank you so much for your time. It's been so much fun catching up with you. I'm sorry we couldn't do this in person. All the best success on what you are doing. I look forward to the headlines saying, hey, she just hit another home run. I really appreciate you spending some time with us today. Thank you so much, Jim. That was Ella Corrett-Smith, Chief Strategy Officer and Co-Founder of Virica Biotech. You can find out more about Ella and her team at vericabiotech.com. You can also follow Ella on social at ella ellabizdev, that's E-L-L-A-B-I-Z-D-E-V, and you can follow our team on social at Virica Biotech. We are also on social at NGB Ideas, and you can follow me at Lab Occupier. Thanks to Tisha Prasad for researching and editing this week's show. If you'd like to contact me, my email is jwilson at Leonard, that's L-E-N-N-A-R-D dot Thanks so much for listening.